Life to me is a really great opportunity to find solutions, to be creative, to solve some of these pressing environmental challenges so that we can sustain just these amazing landscapes we have in Europe that we sometimes take for granted. Life is zweifelsohne eine enorme Erfolgsgeschichte und ich möchte wirklich allen von Herzen danken, die dazu beigetragen haben und mit ihrem Einsatz, ihrem persönlichen Einsatz, Life wirklich mit Leben erfüllt haben. With the EU Green Deal, Europe has embarked on a massive project of change. And life is there ahead of us, paving the way for the concrete implementation of the deal. Welcome to How to Save a Species, an episode of the Life is 30 podcast series brought to you by the Life Programme to celebrate its 30th anniversary. Three decades of preserving Europe's natural environment and developing innovative green technologies for a more sustainable future. During this Life is 30 series, we're featuring some of the Life projects and talking to some of the people who've made the Life programme such a success. In this episode, we're talking about the Life projects working to save and restore species on the brink of extinction. Let's go first to Andalusia in Spain. Miguel Ángel Simón has won several LIFE awards for his work through the LIFE programme to save the Iberian lynx, a passion since his childhood. I remember it very well because I was with my father. He loved the mountains, Sierra Morena de Jaén, where the lynx lived at that time. It would have been around the mid-1960s, I must have been around 10 or 12 years old. And in the Sierra de Andujar, that's where I saw a lynx, together with my father, which grabbed my attention. My father explained it to me because he enjoyed nature very much. Look at its tail, he said. It's very short, and the ears, like that. Lynx numbers began to decline in the 1950s. Successive outbreaks of the viral disease myxomatosis devastated the wild rabbit population, which represented up to 90% of a lynx's diet. When Miguel Ángel began his work with LIFE two decades ago, the species was considered critically endangered by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN. Only 94 Iberian lynx remained in Spain, and none at all in Portugal. It was a dramatic situation that gave us great cause for concern. I remember that feline experts from IUCN came here, alarmed that Europe, the European Union, one of the richest parts of the world, could be the first to see a feline become extinct. So it was necessary to do something to avoid that situation. The strategy to save the lynx benefited from the support of several local private landowners. The population of rabbits was also restored, with more than 100,000 released into the wild over two decades. The few lynx that remained were generally on private estates that were mostly large hunting areas with little interest in conservation. And we set up an entire conservation strategy that was based principally on collaboration agreements with private landowners. Second, we developed a strategy for restoring rabbit populations. Where there were rabbits, we looked at habitat improvement, and where there were no rabbits, by repopulation. The project established breeding centres in southern Spain to broaden the genetic diversity of the Iberian lynx, another important step in ensuring the species' long-term viability. Animals bred in captivity were released into the wild, 
and some links were captured and released elsewhere to reinforce this strategy. The results were astonishing. There are now around 1,200 Iberian links in Spain and Portugal, 13 times the number when work began to save this iconic species. Thanks to the LIFE programme, Miguel Ángel united more than 20 different stakeholders as partners to save the Iberian lynx. Destroying a species is relatively easy. Saving a species is very expensive. So it's better to work on conservation preemptively instead of having to recover a species because of the costs involved. In other words, the LIFE projects have meant that we will have invested around 100 million euros, of which the European Union will have contributed half. The other half has been put in by the partners. That's a very significant contribution, but it's not that significant if we compare it to the cost of a kilometre of motorway. It's not that much. It amounts to three or four kilometres of motorway. And I think that a species like this, a unique natural heritage, is worth saving four kilometres of motorway to have this jewel. It's an investment that, over 20 years, has fostered economic development for the region. The Sierra de Andújar was previously known as the capital of hunting, and it's a particular form of big game hunting. Currently, the Sierra de Andújar is known internationally for the Iberian lynx. This has brought a new influx of visitors who come to see the Iberian lynx, and it has helped launch tourism companies that take visitors to see the lynx. It has generated hotel bookings, etc., etc. And there are people who have found jobs thanks to the Iberian lynx. Thanks to Miguel Ángel Simón, a biologist whose outstanding commitment has won him a Lifetime Achievement Award from the LIFE programme. Now, as this podcast series got underway, the European Commission proposed a new EU-wide nature restoration law. It will make species and habitat restoration a legal obligation for member states, protecting people and nature. BirdLife International describes it as a game-changer. We asked Florica Finkhoyer, Director-General of the European Commission's DG Environment, to tell us more. 80% of our habitats in Europe are not in a good state or even sometimes in a poor state. You're talking about the rivers, the forests, the peatlands, but also the green spaces in urban areas. I mean, all types of agricultural ecosystems as well, marine habitats, uh, seagrass, sediments, whatever. You clearly have to do something to restore back nature. And that's what this legislation brings about because it comes with, on the one hand, aspirational long-term vision and and, and targets, but then also with very clear legal targets which member states then have to achieve. Member states will have to submit their plans to the Commission. The aim is to cover at least 20% of the EU's land and sea areas by 2030 with nature restoration measures and eventually extend that to all ecosystems in need of restoration by 2050 a proposal that the IUCN heralded as a boost for biodiversity and climate. It's an insurance against biodiversity loss and therefore also climate change because it goes hand in hand. Many of these restoration um, activities or restoration uh, targets will lead to less cost in disaster risk management. We basically looked at um, 
two priorities, which areas or which ecosystems would give the biggest impact on climate change, in particular peatlands, wetlands and, and, and forest, and which areas or ecosystems are extremely important in order to be a buffer or um, a prevention preparedness measure also in restoration against floods, droughts, other things. Thank you, Florica. We'll come back to you later. Now to Coquet Island, off the northeast coast of England. This windswept, pristine landscape is home to many seabirds, including the roseate tern. It's Europe's rarest breeding seabird, once endangered by hunters who sought its plumage, and more recently at risk from predatory large gulls and loss of habitats. More than 300 life nature projects have targeted rare and endangered bird species, reversing the decline in numbers but also deploying measures such as scientific research, habitat restoration, land acquisition and long-term management. The roseate tern's precarious conservation status made it a priority for life funding as it was for the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the RSPB, among the UK's foremost nature conservation organisations. The RSPB led this project at sites in Ireland and here on Coquit Island. Well, I've just got off the boat and I'm making my way up from the jetty up to the Rosier Turn Terrace. I've got to be quite quick past here because we don't want to disturb the Rosiers. And we also have a couple of eider duck on nests. Uh, here there's a rosier turn above my head right now. You can hear that call. I'm just passing the observation hide that we use for leading the rosier turn rings and making my way up towards the, the lighthouse. Uh, it's a lovely day, but very, very windy, so the quicker we can get indoors and let the birds be, the better. Here we are. Coquit Island Lighthouse. That's Paul Morrison, manager of the Coquit Island Reserve. When he first started working here in the 1980s, there were a mere 18 pairs of roseate terns. Paul had to battle the assumption that the eventual disappearance of this species was just a matter of time. Saving the roseate tern meant creating the right conditions for it to recover. There has to be good feeding. And sadly, elsewhere in the UK, the feeding is poor because of the temperature rises. Here on the northeast coast, the sea temperature is cold, the sand eels are plentiful, so birds like roseate terns that depend on sand eels are doing well. So feeding is a critical thing. They're a very timid bird and they're easily spooked, especially when they're only few in number. So providing uh, quiet nesting areas and minimal disturbance, no landing, keeping people away from the reserve is a, a priority. The project improved nesting opportunities for the roseate tern by clearing vegetation, building terraces and providing safe nesting boxes to restrict the activity of predators. Over its life cycle, the project doubled the number of breeding pairs of roseate terns in the United Kingdom, from 73 to 131. And the population of Rockerbill in the Western Irish Sea increased significantly too. 
As is often the case in life projects, volunteers play a major role in protecting nature. The team on Cogod Island is everything to make this place a success for Rosiate Terns. We don't have many, we have three people, maybe four, working at times and living on the island, but that's backed up by volunteers. We even guard the birds at night time, so the island and the seabirds are protected 24-7. Without those volunteers and the rest of the team, we just couldn't deliver what we do. I'm convinced what the Life Programme brought to Cocod Island over those five years just sets the scene for the future management of Cocod Island to benefit Rosier Terns. It was opening doors for conservation. Thank you, Paul, and the Life Rosier Tern team in beautiful Cocod Island in Northumberland. And talking about opening doors for conservation, Laszlo Becci, a policy officer in DG Environment in the European Commission, outlines for us how Life Roseate Tern is part of a bigger conservation picture. The different species of terns have quite similar uh, requirements. And in fact, the project itself is contributed to the international action plan on the terns because it's not sufficient to, to work on the breeding ground, so they have to work along the flyway of the birds, and terns are usually uh, long-term migrants, so this species actually goes to West Africa. So they have to make sure that once the, the reproduction issue is uh, resolved, then, then the rest of the problems on the wintering grounds and, and in between are uh, addressed, and this is what the action plan is trying to address. The imperative to save and protect rare and endangered species is driving forward the EU's biodiversity strategy. This aims to extend the Natura 2000 network of protected areas to cover 30% of land and 30% of sea in the EU by 2030. It's a challenge Laszlo and his colleagues are working towards. Land indeed we are not too far. If you look at all the protected areas, it's 26 or so percent, so it seems feasible. While at sea, it's uh, roughly 10 percent currently, so that is a, a big jump to make. But it's also important, the management, it's, it's not sufficient just to have more areas under protection. We have to make sure that whatever we have is also managed properly, because otherwise we just have uh, paper parks. And that can be an issue in particular at sea, where the enforcement or the patrolling uh, is much more difficult. Thanks, Laszlo. And indeed, the challenge of the marine environment is a good way to introduce our next landmark life project, Cyclades Life, in Greece. This project, as its name suggests, focused on the magnificent environment of the Cycladis island group in the Aegean Sea. Front and centre of this project was addressing the alarming decline in numbers of an extremely rare mammal. The Mediterranean mongrel is an iconic species for the Mediterranean. It's uh, the only pinniped that exists within the Mediterranean. It's an indicator of the status of the health of the Mediterranean Sea. Because it's a top predator, it's an indicator of what is the status of the whole web and of the whole marine ecosystem. If we preserve the Mediterranean Monk Seal and if we manage to uh, sustain it, it means that we're doing well with how we manage our seas. That's Spiros Kotomatas from the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which has coordinated project activities on and around the island of Gyaros. 
The Mediterranean monk seal is a priority species for conservation listed in the Habitats Directive, and it's considered endangered by the IUCN. But the monk seal population on the island of Chiaros gave the Cyclades Life team hope. We identified that the Mediterranean monk seal population on the site, we are talking about almost 70 individuals that are inhabiting the island and have a breeding rate of monk seal pups at about 10 pups a year, which is an impressive number. But also, uh, we have a number of important marine habitats, extended fields of Posidonia and of reefs. On the terrestrial side, a, a number of seabirds and birds of prey. The project had to strike a balance between conservation and human activity like tourism, which is essential to the island's economy. We established a lot of innovative elements. We established, for example, a number of underwater paths to promote uh, ecotourism and scuba diving tourism within the marine protected areas. We installed for the protection of the Posidonia eco-friendly moorings to eliminate the threat of anchorage, which is the main threat in the Cyclades and in the Mediterranean for Posidonia meadows. We established and designed a number of trails on the terrestrial part. From the outset, the project recognised the importance of taking a holistic approach to conservation and protection if efforts to save the Mediterranean monk seal were to succeed. We did a very detailed uh, stakeholder analysis and we invited 15 of the main stakeholders for the island, the port police authorities, the tourism sector, the fishers, the local communities, and we established a co-management committee creating a common background on what is on the island and what could be done and should be done on the island to preserve its biodiversity, to create opportunities and infrastructures to promote long-impact tourism in order to support the neighbouring island communities. As well as tourism, fishing is a pillar of the island's economy. One of the project's achievements was to crack down on rogue fishing activities, which otherwise would have threatened the sustainability of the stakeholders' common efforts. Through the system of surveillance, together with the Port Police authorities, within the last five years, illegal fishing activities have been uh, decreased by 85% within the marine protected area of Yaros, which means that marine resources are flourishing for the benefit of the monk seal, but also of the fishermen as well, because low-impact fisheries are allowed within certain parts of the marine protected area. Spiros Kotomatas there from Life Cycladis, helping to save the world's rarest pinniped. Thanks to him for his contribution. Spiros was talking about illegal activities, which can have a devastating effect on rare species, even those supposedly under protection. Surveillance is one way to combat them. Another way is through enforcement. And here's Florica Finkhoyer, Director General of DG Environment at the European Commission, to tell us how life is helping member states to strengthen their approach in this field. Environmental crime is actually like organised crime. And unfortunately, it's quite lucrative. We just came out uh, with a proposal to enhance uh, what we call and revise environmental crime directive, uh, where we um, design uh, or explain what new types of environmental crime exist 
and uh, then ask member states to come up with sanctions that are commensurate to the impact, the negative impact they, these crimes have on the environment or the damage. And here life comes in because if you want member states to really act upon and have deterrent sanctions, you need to have judges, prosecutors, the enforcement authorities must have the correct knowledge and expertise. So here life comes in because it does support now this um, network of prosecutors and judges and help them to um, develop uh, their knowledge and also to learn from each other with best practices. Thank you, Florica. Now, within the EU Biodiversity Strategy 2030 is the goal of creating green corridors between protected areas, which are often isolated or surrounded by urban landscapes or intensively cultivated areas. We discussed this question of habitat connectivity in our Roots in Nature episode of this Life is 30 series. And it's a question at the heart of our fourth project in this podcast on saving a species. We're in the Wallonia region of Belgium, where we meet Joël Huysekom from Natagora, an NGO leading a project, Life Connexion, working to save two rare species, one in water and one on land. The violet copper is a small butterfly attracted to the bistort, which is a plant with beautiful pink flowers. It is a butterfly that doesn't have an especially long range. So other areas of habitat need to be a maximum of one kilometer away. That's why it's important that we restore and link habitats sufficiently for this butterfly to be able to move around. And it's reinforcing species like the violet copper butterfly that is among the goals of the EU's Pollinators Initiative, which aims to turn around the serious decline in pollinating insects across Europe. But the freshwater pearl mussel is no less demanding. The pearl mussel only lives in rivers with very good water quality. Its life cycle depends on fish, because its larvae are carried in the gills of trout. And here there's also a problem of connection, because if we want the pearl mussel to inhabit the whole of the river in the long term, the trout that transport these larvae in their gills must be able to swim freely along the watercourse. So we are going to tackle the problem of dams, for example, which prevent the circulation of trout. These dams will ultimately prevent the pearl mussel from re-inhabiting the entire length of these watercourses. Joël and her organization, Natagora, have been involved in life projects for many years, and Life Connexion is an extension of the principles of an earlier project, Life Herbage, which focused on species protection and habitat management in Belgium's chalk grasslands. One of the most valuable aspects of life projects is that they help us make progress on knowledge of habitats, monitoring methods and ways of restoration. We're always improving and we're always learning lessons from previous projects. Also, the life community meets regularly and through this contact, we're able to exchange knowledge about best practice. So we're part of an ongoing process of continuous improvement. Joelle Huysekom there, rounding off this podcast on how to save a species, with her work to respond to the exacting demands of two very different but precious species. 
All these pioneering life projects have shown that it is possible to bring species back from the brink of extinction and by doing so, restore nature, a challenge that is inextricably linked with climate action. And as well as the European environmental legislation we've talked about here, major efforts are ongoing at a global level aimed at securing the international cooperation necessary to protect and restore the natural world on which we all depend. Food for thought, indeed. Well, that's also the title of the next episode in this Life is 30 series. Intrigued? Well, we look forward to you joining us for that. So, until next time, remember, life, it's what you make it. Dear listeners, thanks for tuning in to Life is 30, the podcast series celebrating 30 years of the LIFE programme the EU's funding instrument for the environment and climate action. Life is 30 is brought to you by SENEA, the European Climate Infrastructure and Environment Executive Agency. Research and production by Margarita Sforza and Claire Taylor. Our thanks to all the members of the LIFE community. Mm-hmm.